Hello, and welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. Today, we're speaking with esteemed economist and statistical expert, Dr. Charles Cowan, about post-pandemic key considerations for the future of company culture and business development. Dr. Cowan is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Managing Member for the National Statistics, Finance, and Economics Consultancy, Analytic Focus. With more than 40 years of experience, Dr. Cowan is an IMS elite expert, specializing in the development of financial research and its use in improving shareholder values, economic impact studies, and risk management. Dr. Cowan, I know you've been working with a number of clients really around the globe um, to help them build more more reliable models for, for using HR, and I'm using the word HR analytics, but really just taking that information being able to apply analytics to help inform those decisions. What right now are you seeing are really the key considerations that companies and firms need to be looking at with respect to their commercial real estate portfolios, their workforce, how to handle those next steps right now, which, you know, I know there's some urgency as restrictions ease, but, but also just business as usual, those decisions that need to be made regardless. So what are you, what are you seeing with clients? I, I have to tell you, you're asking me probably a year too early. The reason is because I think people haven't figured this out yeah. fully. So part of what I'm seeing is talent retention, but at all levels, because now I'm seeing um, a, a lot of discussion for you know partners and senior partners in law firms um, mm. moving and transitioning to where they think that they have the best uh, balance of uh, work life and uh, home life. Uh, that's become much more of a consideration because now they're home when they weren't previously. And so you need to have that, that kind of balance, but it's being enforced. And if you're able to work from home and you like working from home, uh, then that becomes a, another part of the calculus that wasn't there previously. So um, I think you're asking me a little, I mean, it's we're a year and a half into the pandemic. But now we're coming off the pandemic, but the dynamics have changed. And I don't think they've worked their way through completely. So let's think about culture. You know, uh, when I was at um, Pricewaterhouse, um, we worked really hard on corporate culture. And Pricewaterhouse was really good at developing uh, a culture of uh, people enjoying where they were working and having, um, you know, both kind of a combination of, of the social and the business and the intellectual, and I, I really enjoyed working there. And then they merged with another firm and that culture went out the window. And um, that was a, a loss for Pricewaterhouse. And the new company then had to build a new culture because there were two cultures that were um, somewhat different. And so it's hard to bring them together. Well, if you are even a small size firm, uh, and I look at mine as being a medium small firm, um, but we, we we work on developing a culture, we work on a particular way of, particular way of doing things, and it's reinforced every day. Mm -hmm. How do I do that when people are only coming in on occasion and I don't see them? And the only opportunity I have to talk to them is through a Zoom call or a, a, a Cisco WebEx call where I am uh, having an interaction with them about this one specific project, but I'm not having a discussion with them 
and they're not talking to each other across projects, which is where the culture develops as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, the uniqueness of each project. So I, I think um, maintaining and then developing a culture is going to be incredibly hard in the future. And yet that's a, a key piece of retention, both to keep the best people and also just to, to keep people in general, as opposed to having a kind of a merry-go-round. I do think that, um, as I said, the other problem with a lot of the, the, um, the models and um, the, the thinking that I see is that there is always the reaction to what's going on today, as opposed to thinking about where am I going to be in five years and how do I get people from here to there, mm -hmm. as opposed to it just kind of happening. So if there are going to be better ways to communicate, um, people get Cisco War Room or whatever the other innovations are that are going to come along. How do I uh, anticipate that <clears throat> and work that into my system as opposed to playing catch up at the, uh, at the end of the process? So again, this is all part of that HR um, forecasting. And HR doesn't operate in a vacuum. Uh, I think that's the other problem. Uh, uh, you, you reach out, you talk to the HR department and don't recognize that HR has got to interact with finance and it's got to, you know, with the sales and with the operations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, HR is is uh, kind of the spearhead for a lot of the other operations. But, you know, you actually have to have something behind you. You can't just be a spearhead with no spear. So uh, I think I just made up a new metaphor. This is like great. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the point is, is that anything that you can do that would forecast how work is going to be improved or easier in the future, it will ripple through the company. It won't just be, you know, some innovation that's brought about by HR because they could provide a great service by forecasting what's going to happen in the future and think about, you know, um, how a futurist thinks about what the world is going to be like in five years or 10 years and how that benefits their company. I don't see any of that going on in, in HR at all. Yeah, interesting. Um, and then that that drive to adapt, um, really when you, you start to see the, the tide turning a little bit. Um, you know, I wanna ask you too, is there a way that HR analytics or a more even a more dynamic model, like what you've been building with some of the clients you've been working with, can that help firms identify those hot spots where retention's low or there really is, you know, potential risk or poor leadership or high accident rates, things like that? I would say some of the models do that now, but maybe not as focused um, a method. So if I have a, a basic retention model and I look at um, overall what's going on in the company, and I see fluctuations, uh, more people are leaving, fewer people are leaving. I may not know necessarily why that is. So a basic retention model that, that just looks at um, pay and employee engagement may miss um, some key items that are really uh, impacting, but only in parts of the company. So if I have poor supervision on one line in an assembly plant, or if I have poor supervision and a lot of accidents in a uh, assembly plant, I need to know about that because that's going to cause more turnover uh, than anything else. And you can't compensate people for uh, bad leadership. Um, I mean, you, you can offer more money, but at some point 
bad leadership is going to trump that and you want to be able to um, think about what's really the best for your company. Does the supervisor need training? Does the supervisor need to go find a, a competitor to work for so that it can bring them down and you improve your own company? Uh, same thing with accidents. I um, have heard from several companies about concerns about accidents and what causes them, why do they happen, uh, but over and above that, then what's the impact of accidents on retention? You know, the fact is, is that um, uh, there you're looking at what I would call a lagged effect because somebody, somebody having an accident doesn't mean that I'm going to have an accident, but after a couple of those, you start to think, and then somewhere down the road, you say, well, this isn't a safe place to work. I'm going to go work someplace else. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you, you want to avoid that. Um, I mean, you'd like to avoid accidents to begin with, but there, that's a residual effect that is going to impact a, a large number of your workers. It doesn't just impact, you know, the next guy over. It has this um, sort of ripple effect throughout your company. So models don't look at that right now. There is not the deep dive into, you know, where where do I find a ripple effect? Where do I find an effect because something happened six months ago? They they don't do that, and that um, is uh, an area where things could grow and expand and, and um, uh, improve in terms of how one uses these types of uh, techniques within HR to better understand uh, why you have this ebb and flow. Uh, that you may not pick up um, in any other way. Very interesting. Um, and Dr. Cowan, you mentioned law firms a minute ago, and I wanted to talk with you. I know we were recently, you and I were discussing a recent report from Thomson Reuters on the state of the legal market. Um, and they were looking at U.S. firms and U.K. firms had conducted some surveys, and they were finding really interesting things that 75% of partners were saying the number one area to reduce spending and budget for the firm was real estate. And another another um, finding that they had in that report was one third of senior partners would plan to leave their firm in two years if they weren't able to work remotely or have that kind of work-life balance that you mentioned. And, you know, traditionally we think of law firms, especially big law, and we're thinking much more traditional brick and mortar, you're meeting clients, but sure. we've seen so much disruption over the last year, even jury trials in the U.S. handled over Zoom, um, you know, and you're, you're talking about remote war rooms being set up potentially now. We're definitely seeing some of that start to emerge. And um, are, are big law firms facing some of the same challenges here that we're seeing in private companies? So I'm going to repeat what I said about five minutes ago, which is you're probably asking me a year too early. <laughs> So let me tell you what I think is going to happen, because um, you're right that that Thomson Reuters article was very well written and very interesting in terms of the topics it covered. But I, I saw what you said about the um, the partners saying that, you know, they would leave if they weren't, weren't able to work remotely and that they wanted to focus on reduction in uh, costs. But um, most law firms that I work with big, medium, or even small, still have to make a certain amount of investment in some type of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to have client meetings, or you're going to have like a settlement discussion, or some other type of negotiation, 
that typically um, maybe in the you know in the old days that was always done in person and in the last year it's been done via um, uh, the internet um, but what's going to happen in the future and I don't think anybody's thought that through they're just thinking about well I'd like to work at home mm-hmm. really would you like to work at home but you're going to be remote on a settlement where everybody else is around the table um, you know because uh, just this morning or last night actually the CDC came out and said, you know, you don't have to wear masks anymore if you're vaccinated. Right. So if you and all of your colleagues and your clients and your opponents are all vaccinated, what's to keep you from all getting around the table? And, and um, that may be, you know, better for a discussion. On the other hand, maybe five years from now, once the, you know, Cisco War Room takes over, you won't need to do that. Everybody will be able to be in the same room virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so what I'm saying is, is that I think that this is the short-term reaction to the pandemic, but that, first of all, there's a certain amount of infrastructure that you, you need, and maybe depositions will go away, and you don't need quite as much office space mm-hmm. because they, they won't go away. They'll just be online like they are now. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the other hand, there, there may be other uh, reasons to have... Um, uh, meeting space like that. Um, but the other problem, so we talked about half an hour ago about training. I mm-hmm. still think that despite the fact that, you know, the senior partners all want to work at home, uh, the fact is, is that you can't um, as effectively develop people without having some personal interaction with them, which is um, why I think you're going to see this huge push for the schools to reopen and all the students go back in class. Um, there's a lot of discussion within the educational community about how uh, students learn from one another as much as they learn from their teacher because they exchange ideas or one person explains to another how something is is done. Um, that was certainly my experience um, getting my doctorate, but I, I know also from uh, working with um, a lot of educators um, that that is a, a key component of learning. Well, if it's a key component of learning uh, in schools, it's also going to be a key component of learning on the job uh, that you still need to have this kind of interaction. So I, I get that everybody would like to work from home or at least would um, make sense that they work from home part-time. But then if they're going to be in the office a couple of days and they're not going to be in the office a couple of days, where does the reduction in space come from? Are they willing to share offices so that, you know, uh, Mr. Smith gets an office Monday, Tuesday, and Mr. Jones gets an office uh, Thursday and Friday, and it's empty on Wednesday, uh, so that they cut down on their need for space? Or is everybody going to say, well, that's fine for everybody else, but I need to have my office, right. in which case there's no reduction in office space. Right. So I, I I understood, you know, that that was the reaction after the first year when everybody was forced to work from home. But now if they're saying that they want to work two days from home, what are they willing to give up to be able to affect that? And if they're not willing to give up something, then I don't see any any savings um, in terms of what they're what they're paying on commercial space. Makes sense. And then for the for for law firm officers, big law officers, administration, um, how do they walk that fine line to retain those senior partners who are feeling itchy and saying, you know, 
I really like this work-life balance I hadn't had before. Um, you know, how do you build a model? You mentioned the hub and spoke model, but um, maybe it's just a, a case of we don't have the models yet for what would be how how all of this is going to sustain. Yeah. Well, I will say that um, I think also that there's an advantage um, uh, that the senior senior partners have, which is that they are senior senior partners, mm -hmm. but there's very few of those. Mm -hmm. So maybe those guys work at home but the intermediate partners don't get to make that call yeah. uh, because somebody's got to be around to, you know, hurt everybody else. So I, I think that it's like way too early to say this is the way it's going to work out because I think that there are items like we were just discussing, uh, who gets to keep their office, for example, uh, that haven't been fully thought through mm -hmm. and that somewhere down the road, the realization is going to hit people and it's going to be a lot more messy than mm. it seems to be right now. I'm thinking about taking up a sideline of selling boxing gloves <laughs> to law firms. Um, you know, let them duke it out. Thank you to Dr. Charles Cowan for speaking with us today and a special thanks to our listeners. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver integrated trial services for the most influential global firms. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and over 2,000 trials. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us next time on the IMS Insights Podcast.